Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The National Science Foundation is on the march. It's establishing what it calls regional innovation engines. They're already up and running. It's getting organized around artificial intelligence to a greater degree, and it's getting and granting out more money than ever. Joining me with an update, NSF Director Dr. Saturaman Panchanathan. Dr. P, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. It's great to have you again engage with us. I mean, it's a pleasure to be talking to you today. All right. I want to start with the NAIRR. This is the National Artificial Intelligence Research Resource, a concept for a national infrastructure that connects U.S. researchers, I'm reading, to computational data, software, model, and training resources. Tell us what's actually going on with this. Tom, you know, as you, as you will all agree, AI is part of everything that we are doing today, and it's probably going to occupy more of a central core. Uh, It's almost becoming like electricity is, right? Today, where you, you know, you don't even pay attention to it. It is part of your regular daily life. So you can think of AI in that terms as we think think of the future. So the NAIR, the National AI Research Resource, was essentially put together in order that we can move fast and build things for our nation. So that's a very important thing that at this moment that we need to invest in uh, and and we need to make sure that we are unleashing all possible ideas, talent, innovations everywhere across our country. This research resource will serve as a critical driver for a healthy, trustworthy US AI ecosystem. And as you said in your remarks, it will strengthen the pursuit of new AI tools, systems, and fields of studies. Whether the researchers are in academia, local or federal government or small businesses from every corner of our nation. Now, this will be critical for our nation and its continued leadership at the edge of AI innovation. There's a lot of resources that are named here, computational, data, software. Where will all this come from? What are the sources of the raw materials for people to conduct research with? Now, as you can imagine that, you know, so far, if you look at the AI development, And as you think into the future and the amount of resources and all the other things that comes with it, not only the compute resources, the software resources, the model resources, right? And all of those will require, you know, investments if you want to democratize this access and therefore be able to provide the ideas and innovations that's everywhere across our nation unleashed. So the NAIR pilot as a first step is a proof of concept for the NAIR. And how do we take the, the, the steps in terms of realizing the full vision of what it takes? And what that would entail, obviously, is several component parts that will make up you know, what an air would look like. We need high-performance computing resources. We need commercial cloud computing resources. We need data sets, access to data sets covering a range of domains that can support the development and testing of AI-powered systems. We need, of course, advanced tools, software and platforms. We clearly need AI models, uh, models that is access to open and proprietary AI models so that we can facilitate research on the models themselves and applying models to novel problems. Of course, most importantly, we also need learning and training opportunities, the educational opportunities that will enhance researcher skills. So all of these components have to be advanced through NAIR and the NAIR pilot therefore in partnership with over a dozen agencies, federal agencies, and over 25 
you know, non-governmental partners, whether it is industry, whether it is philanthropy, whether it is non-profits, all of them are coming together so that we might build this pilot and therefore th that forms the basis for the full-scale deployment of NAIR. And so that's what we're looking at. So the pilot implementation essentially will bring together computational data, software, model, funding, and training resources from a range of partners within government, the technology sector, nonprofits, philanthropies, demonstrating the shared priority of addressing the critical resource gaps in the AI community. And what is the mechanism by which this group, you mentioned there's almost 37 parties to the pilot, who decides where the supercomputing comes from, where the models come from, where the data training comes from, and this kind of thing. You know, operationally, how does it work in a practical sense? So NSF has been, you know, uh, assigned as the, the management agency, which brings together these partnerships. NSF has got a track record, Tom, as you know, of bringing together partners of various types interagency partners, industry partners, partners from the nonprofit, philanthropy, and et cetera. We've got a proven track record of how do we bring everybody to the table, co-create, and implement together for the benefit of humanity, society, and in this case, advancing the research ideas and building the talent and building the innovative outcomes that we all seek. We are speaking with Dr. Setraman Panchanathan, director of the National Science Foundation. Well, if the, say, energy department says that's the one where the supercomputing will come in, just to make an example, who pays for it? And is there money available for that extra computing that they will be obligated to provide to the NAIR? So right now, uh, Tom, what we're doing is we're all co-investing with the resources that we have. And, you know, you, you point out the Department of Energy, a great partner, bringing into care computational resources. But we are also looking to this pilot expanding to a full scale for which additional investments will be needed for all of us to be able to make sure that we are scaling all of these resources to meet the demand, to meet this moment that we need to meet. And so and I'm delighted that with the leadership of the administration, the Biden-Harris administration, and the true bipartisan support that we have in Congress, you know, we have both in the Senate side and the House side select AI committees you know, they have had conversations with a variety of folks through panels and so on, you know. And so through that, the Create AI Act, for example, is a way in which we are looking at how we might invest. And we are looking forward to the congressional investments uh, because it's a very important moment, important time. And we need to be in the vanguard of these ideas, talent and innovation and then keeping us you know, ahead of our competitors. And therefore, we are uh, working diligently uh, as a, a collective force bringing together all of the folks that have a stake in this. And I'm pleased to say that I'm excited by how things are progressing, and I look forward to a wonderful outcome from all of this. Yeah, it's been up and running only about a month at this point, the pilot. Anything has happened yet? Yeah, I mean, we have brought together, I mean, this is something that, uh, Tom, I'm glad you asked this question. You know, on October 30th, 2023, President Biden, President Biden signed the executive order 14110. And, um, uh, you know, the agencies were all tasked with various things. And among the tasking for NSF, there was a directing to NSF to launch the NAIR pilot within 90 days. And I'm proud to say that within such a short time, we were able to bring all of the parties together. And that, that is a credit to all of the participants who are all excited and wanting to work together. And so we have already launched the pilot. And the pilot is, as you said, the first step in seeing how we can advance on all of the uh, areas that we talked about, but 
we are going to have more convenings. We're going to have more releases of opportunities for people to participate through the resources that have been identified so that you know people can then bring their ideas and make sure that the resource gaps that I talked about, the critical resource gaps in the AI community are addressed. And therefore, we can have participation from a broad community. Um, and that will help us build these new models, new algorithms, new tools, um, and, 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 and new innovative outcomes. So your sense is that there are a lot of ideas out there about AI that could be developed by people if only they had resources they can't access now. That is to say, if you need substantial cloud computing resources or you need substantial supercomputing resources, now there's a pathway to those things for those, let's say, underserved researchers. Absolutely. You know, underserved locations, underserved researchers, this is about, as I said, democratizing AI access, AI development, AI uh, ideas being unleashed at speed, at scale, all across our nation. There is so much that we can do here. And at NSF, we are also focused on development of talent, as you know. We are the STEM talent agency, and we invest quite extensively through the K-12 investments that we make, community college investments that we make in skills development, as well as investments that we make in higher institutions and um, you know, continuous upskilling, reskilling kind of investments. These are all ensuring we have a program called Expand AI, for example, through which we are investing, particularly in institutions that have not had a chance to participate yet, like the minority-serving institutions, right? And the second uh, tier of research institutions, as well as the first tier of research institutions, all of them being enabled, you know, minority-serving institutions, tribal colleges, right, um, K-12, as well as research universities, all of them participating because we need all of that and more in order for us to be able to deliver the kind of the scale of talent that will be required for us to be in the vanguard of competitiveness. So it sounds like one of the first orders of business for this NAIR consortium, if you will, is to develop the criteria by which you will grant access and resources to those that apply. Correct. In any of these, you want to have a set of um, criteria by which when people are asking for resources for the, de- for, for, for the development of their ideas or, or, or building their ideas or building tools and so on, you want to make sure, and, and as you know, again, NSF and the other agencies are very, very good at that in terms of looking at those ideas, looking at the strength of the ideas and the potential impact that those ideas can generate. And therefore, we use the criteria by which we choose those projects that we want to provide access to these resources so that they can advance very rapidly in terms of the development of those. And just give us a sense of who these uh, 25 non-governmental partners are. Are they mostly universities or who else might be part of that? No, these are industry partners. Let me give you, you know, this is like, you know, if you, if you take the who's who in, uh, in the AI industry, you know, NVIDIA or Microsoft or Amazon or IBM, right, open AI. I mean, the, the who's who, you'll find, I mean, we are happy to share the list with you, but the who's who are all part of this. And, um, you know, because you, the, you know, because people want to be part of this, right? They all want to make sure that the talent and ideas that are out there are inspired, motivated, nurtured, and brought to life so that they can still advance on their industry priorities and, and, and what they want to do in terms of all of the stuff that they are working on in AI, whether it is the development of the next generation of hardware for implementing things, you know, uh, Anthropic, AMD, Databricks, uh, Eleuther AI, Google, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, Hugging Face, Intel, Meta. I can go on. I mean, Omidyar Network. I think we get the idea. The point that, that needs to be made is 
the who's who in AI are all participating in this. And that's the exciting part because they all believe that this is important. The democratization of AI resource is important. The inspiration of talent across our nation is important. And because it also ensures the success of those entities. And um, that's what we are trying to do. It's a whole of nation approach. Um, whole of government expanded a whole of nation approach, if you want to look at it that way. We are speaking with Dr. Setraman Panchanathan, director of the National Science Foundation. And I want to switch gears here and talk about the regional engines, the innovation engines. I guess there's 10 of those. They were awarded last May, and now they exist. There's a map of them and so on. These were funded by CHIPS Act money, primarily. Tell us what has happened since then and what you expect out of these engines. And, you know, we can get a little bit into the anatomy of them also. Thank you so much, Tom. You know, in the last time that we spoke, uh, when I came to NSF, I really was, you know, convinced that the amount of innovative potential that is there across our nation everywhere should be unleashed, right? And so we launched this new Technology Innovation Partnerships Directorate, the first new directorate of NSF in 31 years. And as soon as we launch a directorate, we have a number of exemplar programs on how innovation can be you know, made possible anywhere across our nation. One exemplar program is the regional innovation engines. How do we take the innovation in place that is available all across our nation? How do we bring together a mindset of multiple parties working together so that they might build this innovation ecosystem through public-private partnerships? Right. I always liken this to the Bell Lab-like thinking, right? I mean, how do you have academic researchers, industry practitioners, all of them working together in a way that you unleash not only fundamental ideas and technologies, but you also build them and make possible you know, innovative outcomes, industries of the future, and also, more importantly, the people who become leaders uh, of today and tomorrow. So I'm excited to say that the Regional Innovation Engine Competition had two scales. One is the type one which is about seeding innovation. And um, we were thrilled because when we put this call out as a concept note that we wanted people to present in terms of what their region is best at in terms of exemplifying that innovative in-place potential that was there. And we got 670 concept papers, which spanned all across our nation, all territories, all regions, all states participated in that. We made that publicly available for people to look at it. And through that, people you know, again formed strong partnerships we had a couple hundred proposals. We funded 44 of them in the first tranche right away, each a million dollars. But every one of those regional innovation engines, I'm excited to say, is unleashing the innovative potential in various parts of our nation, 46 states in this case. And then we had the type two, which is a little bit more mature innovation ecosystems being invested in to scale and rapidly you know, have the innovative outcomes. And again, through partnerships, right? And we just launched the 10 innovation engines all across our nation. You know, we had a tremendous response again. We had 36 semi-finalists, 16 finalists, and we launched the 10 of them. And you look again at all of these, you will see that this is not just, you know, we are hoping that something will happen. These are, you know, innovation ecosystems which are ready, ready to unleash the, the ideas, talent, and of course the innovative uh, outcomes through industry scaling, new companies forming, uh, entrepreneurial ventures, uh, you know, being um, launched. So it's very exciting to see this. And um, again, there are many, many examples of that. I was in, um, you know, Winston-Salem, for example, uh, with the First Lady, Dr. Biden, talking about one of those, uh, which is on regenerative uh, medicine. Like, you know, it was artificial kidneys and the companies in the ecosystem of 82 partners 
coming together, all the community colleges, sure. the universities, uh, the research centers, the industry, uh, the, the, the governor's office, the economic development ecosystems. It's just amazing to watch that. In looking at the map of the regional innovation engines, there are not California, there's not Massachusetts, Boston area, and there's not New York City. They are sort of a Midwest, almost Southeast orientation. So it sounds like you're smearing out the expertise and the resources somewhat so that it doesn't have that Silicon Valley flavor, which, you know, is getting a little bit green around the edges, maybe. You know, we all know Silicon Valley, Kendall Square, and many parts of the nation are vibrant, robust. We want them to see how they can further our investments still are in those areas where, you know, we have these investments in these universities in those regions, you know, uh, startups in those regions and so on. And they will, they will continue to be vibrant and do amazing things for the nation. But I always say that unless innovation anywhere, vision is realized. Unless opportunities everywhere, vision is realized. And this is what I keep talking about since coming to NSF. Innovation anywhere, opportunities everywhere. We will not be able to outcompete all the things that we need to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to, to, be, uh, to be doing in this, in this hyper-competitive environment. But even more importantly for me is that, that we have the latent talent everywhere across our nation. How can we not have all of the talent in our nation, you know, inspired, motivated, unleashed, okay, and make prosperity possible for all our citizens everywhere across our nation? And I am convinced, and this Regional Innovation Engine is a proof point, that yes, it is possible because there is that excitement everywhere. There is that commitment everywhere. There is this mindset of people coming together as an ecosystem and wanting to unleash talent, ideas, and innovation, as I keep saying this. And I'm very hardened by the fact that this is not just a hypothetical thing. This is reality on the ground, making amazing things possible. And I'm confident that with the partnership with the Department of Commerce and their regional technology hubs, and with the partnership that we have with venture capital firms, the partnership that we have with the economic development ecosystems across the country, that these are not just only what NSF investments do, quite the contrary. We invested $150 million in these 10 for the first two years. At full scale, it'll be 1.6 billion. But what I'm excited to see is that 150 million is matched by $350 million of co-investments made by these partners. To me, that shows commitment. To me, just shows the trust that this is going to work. And to me, that most importantly shows that we are going to have a sustainable, scalable ecosystems developed for the future. And that's what makes me feel very, uh, very excited. And I'm very grateful to the partners. I'm very grateful to the participation and this moment as we keep talking about, it's an important moment, and I'm excited by the bipartisan support. I look forward to seeing how the authorizations of the science portion of Chips and Science is made into appropriations so that we can meet this moment with the investments that are needed to unleash these possibilities. My guest is Dr. Setraman Panchanathan, director of the National Science Foundation. And you have put quite a lot of resources, let's say money, people, talent, organizations into these salads that are these regional centers. What will be some tangible outputs that you're hoping for. Now, there are several metrics by which we look at this, right? Clearly, jobs that will be created, the new industries of the future that will be created, new ideas that will be birthed, and therefore new companies that will birth, and existing companies being able to take advantage of those ideas and scale their operations and position themselves for the future. So it is about the industries of the future, the entrepreneurial ventures of the future. It is about the most important element, which is talent for those industries to be successful in the future. And then it is about, of course, you know, the talent then becomes the, the manifestation of that is the jobs of the future that is made possible through this, right? 
and it is about the vibrant environment everywhere across our nation. So people feel that wherever they are, that they have the opportunities that they can exercise their talent to the fullest extent. So all of these, right, there are hard metrics that we have. There are also, you know, intangible soft metrics also sometimes. All of these are important uh, to keep in mind as we are thinking about the advancement into the future and measuring our progress. And do the regional engines actually have a physical locus? Is there a frosted door somewhere that says regional innovation engine here? Yeah, so I think, you know, the coming together, and if you look at these regional innovation engine locations, you will find that there are these, uh, if you want to look at them as a nodal presence, but it is not just all centered only in the node. It is obviously, it will be successful only when the nodes are connected to all the spokes, uh, like the spokes in a wheel, right? Those spokes, all of the other nodes that are in the ecosystem. So they're all working together as a network rather than just one central node. Right. And then there are quite a bit of sub loci, let's say, around yes. that are subordinate to those engines. What what happens at all of those? No, the, I wouldn't call them subordinates. I would call them as partners, right? All of them bring together unique perspectives that enriches this overall concept. And so, you know, for example, if it is a, um, if it is a, 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 a textile ecosystem, there might be one part of it which might be focused on the next generation of smart fabrics, right? There might be another that might be focused on dyes and chemicals that are necessary for the textile ecosystem to be successful. So each partner brings in unique skill sets. And what is exciting is that the community college and the university ecosystems are saying, what is the skilled technical workforce that is needed for these universities, for these uh, companies to be successful? What kind of mindsets do we need to have? The entrepreneurs who would then be birthing new companies so that they are participating in that form then it really guarantees the success. And you have finally described a pair of really ambitious programs, richly funded, but also partnership money. Do you feel the NSF has the institutional capacity to make sure that you stay on top of all this because it's really a major expansion of activities? I'm glad you mentioned that, Tom, because you know if you look at the birthing, we got a billion dollars of additional resources that was thanks to Congress's appropriations you know, FI 2023 appropriations, we got the billion dollars for the new directorate of technology innovation partnerships, close to a billion dollars. So that is the kind of investments that we need to make in order to build the capacity that you talk about to be uh, all across the agency. It's not just only in the directorate. This billion dollars is to build capacity because at the end of the day, it is the success of the TIP directorate and these programs are only when they leverage all the amazing innovations that's happening through the investments that we're making in all the directorates. And then that this work that again fuels more progress and discoveries in the directorate. So it's a it's a complete again to use the overuse the word ecosystem. It is an NSF ecosystem if you want to look at it that way. That is responding to this in a, in, in a holistic manner. And therefore, this investment of a billion dollars therefore helps us move that needle in a, in, a, in, a, in a capacity that you talk about the capacity way that we need to be responsive. Yes, but to scale this, as I said the appropriations need to follow through uh, with the authorizations that we have from the science bill, uh, CHIPS and science bill, uh, the science part of the authorizations becoming appropriations will only allow it to scale and make this really possible, you know, with the amazing interest that we have seen all across the nation. Dr. Saturaman Panchanathan is director of the National Science Foundation. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It was truly a pleasure talking to you. There's much more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, where you'll also find links to more information about those regional innovation engines and several other programs. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. 
So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.